Let us bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Gracious and living God, as we gather here today, send your spirit upon all of us. Guide me as I seek to preach. Guide each of us as we seek to listen. We ask that somehow, some way through the human word, your divine word would be proclaimed and heard for your greater glory. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. The passage, the parable that Nancy read from the Gospel of Luke, we often call it the parable of the prodigal son. I don't like titles on parables because what it does, it puts it in kind of a box. I have to confess that of all the times I've preached on this parable and throughout my ministry, I have focused on the prodigal son because that's where the title guides you to it. It kind of puts it in a box and there's more to the parable than that. Jesus never titled his parables. And so today my goal is to try to look at the parable and kind of try to hear it as those first century people would heard this parable without a title and see what speaks to us. But first, I think it's important to see why we often put prodigal with this parable. Here's the title of what a prodigal means, what it means. Prodigal is somebody who is extravagant, reckless, profuse, squandering, wasteful, one who spends or gives lavishly and foolishly. The opposite of prodigal is miserly, stingy, close-fisted. Okay, now the parable begins when Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of inheritance. If you were in the first century, you would be shocked at the crudeness, the ruthlessness, the callousness, the unfeeling younger son. I mean, because that was an insulting thing he did to his father. Uh, Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who is a, a, a biblical scholar and Middle Eastern scholar, uh, lived 15 years in the Middle East. And what he did, he, as he traveled around, sometimes he'd go to villages and he'd ask a question, have you ever heard of a son going to ask his father for his inheritance while he was still alive? And they all answered, never heard it done, never heard it ever being done. The second question, you say, well, is it possible it could happen? They said, no, it's impossible. And so the third question you'd say is, what if, what if a son asked his father for the inheritance? What would the father do? And the response, well, you'd beat him, of course. You'd, the father would beat his son. And you'd say, why? Because what the son is saying, dad, I wish you were dead. And so the first century would be shocked that that son would even ask that. Then the next thing is shocking in the parable is the dad didn't beat him. He gave him his request. And because there's two sons, scripture says that the elder son got two thirds of it and the younger son got one third. I mean, this parable for a first century person was loaded with one shocking scene after another. For the next shocking scene is the elder brother takes his inheritance. A good son, 
would have said, no, dad, no, dad. No, you're still alive. I want you to keep it. It's yours. No, I, I want you to live a long time. I don't want you to be dead. You know, you, you keep it. But no, he took it. So now this father has two self-centered, greedy, uncaring sons. And then the next shocking thing in the parable is what does the younger son done? He, he liquidates the land, part of the land he's gotten. He liquidates his resources. I mean, he, he, he gives away his family inheritance to somebody else and gets the money. And he goes away to a faraway place and squanders it recklessly, wastefully. But then he comes to his senses. He all of a sudden begins to realize a famine has hit the country. He is hungry. He's working for a Gentile pig farmer. Uh, you can't sink any lower for a Jewish man than that. And then he, he said, I, I'm going I'm to head back and see if my father will take me on as a hired man. Now you have to realize in the, in the Middle East, it's a shame-honor culture. We're a right-wrong culture. What you did was right, what you did was wrong. In the Middle East, what you did was shameful. What you did brought honor. And this son has shamed the father by asking for his inheritance while he's still alive, wishing his dad was dead. He shamed the family by selling his heritage, by getting money for it, giving it away. He shamed the village and now he thinks he's going to try to head back. But he realizes, too, that he's got to have a speech. So he begins to try to craft this speech. Now think about it. What is his motivation for going back? Has he all of a sudden become wise and said, no, what I did was wrong? No, he's hungry. He wants food. I mean, what would have happened if he had a decent job? He wouldn't be going back to the father. He'd be staying where he is. So his motivation is he just wants some food. And so then he begins to head back. And then the next shock, I mean, to me, as he studied this parable, how shocking everything is. Then the next shocking thing is the father sees him coming from a distance and he runs to his son. In the Middle East, a dignified man never runs. And he runs to a son who has shamed him, who has humiliated him, who has, who has brought shame onto the whole family. And he runs. And scripture said he had compassion for his son. But also there's another motivation too, because if the villagers see him first, they're apt to kill him. And so he runs to the son. And before the son can even say a word, he hasn't heard even why the son is coming back. The father embraces him, gives him a kiss on the cheek, tells him to get the best robe, which would be the father's robe, put a ring on his finger. He's barefoot. He's so poor. Put some sandals on his feet. I'll tell you who's prodigal, that father. That's extravagant love. That's reckless love. Uh, that's lavish love. That's foolish love. Because think about it. He has no idea if the son has really repented and changed of his ways. 
For all he knows, he can put the ring on his finger and then the next day he goes, sells that ring and goes back. A wiser thing to do would have been to say, well, you know, wait a minute. Uh, tell me why you're coming back. Tell me if you really learned your lesson. I mean, I, I want to know for sure you're sincere in what you're saying here, or, or you just tell me so you can get food. That's what a wise person may have done. But Jesus is saying, the God we worship is like that Father. Extraordinary love. Foolish, extravagant love. Love that doesn't wait to hear our, our confession, doesn't wait to see if we've changed our ways, a love that embraces us just as we are and loves us, a love that's so unconditional and so unbelievable, it's hard to even grasp that love that God has for us. Then the next thing the father does, another risky thing, he says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to throw a party for my son that was lost has been found. My son that was dead is now alive. Now the question is, will the villagers accept his decision? There's a question, there's risky there, because if the villagers don't come to the party, then that means they're an outcast family. I mean, in the, as a peasant farmer, you need one another to survive, it's so important. And if the family, if the villagers say no, He's an outcast. Now, how are they even going to survive? But he takes that risk, but the villagers do come. And then we have the next shocking thing is where the elder son refuses to come into the party. How much humiliation can this father have? How much shame can he experience from his two sons? Now, this is interesting, I think. If he would have done what Scripture would have told him and guidance to do, here's what Scripture would have told him to do in the book of Deuteronomy. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders of the gate of his town, they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Isn't that interesting? If he would have followed the letter of scripture, he would have had both sons should have been killed, but he doesn't. His love is so extravagant, so, I'm gonna have to pause a minute. I have a phone call coming in. It was God telling me to speed up. Okay, yeah, I got that. <laughs> so just, just so you know, so I will hurry. But to me, the real prodigal in the story, yes, the younger son did some stupid things, but look how extravagant the love of the father. And when the son won't come in, he goes out to the son. And that's even more shocking. There's one shocking scene after another. another. The father goes out and seeks to, to reconcile, seeks to bring back and bring them into the, into, into the fold. I mean, to me, the more I think of that parable, to realize that 
is how God views us. Extravagant love, a reckless love, and seeking to bring us back into connection with us before we even say a word. And so sometimes I hear God portrayed in a different way that has a kind of a judgmental God that you've got to say the right thing and do the right thing before that love comes here. But in that parable, Jesus describes what God is like. And for me, Jesus is the clearest image I have of understanding God and the greatness of God's view. But then you think about the parable too. Uh, as you look at the parable, there's an interesting caveat in there, is that the two sons, the two brothers, of how they identify themselves. The younger brother comes back, just call me a hired man. He doesn't claim son of the father. Uh, the older brother says, that son of yours doesn't even call him a brother. I wonder if in our world today, that's part of the problem we experience. In my understanding of God, God loves every human being as a precious child of God. Every human being is loved by God, just like God loves us. And because we are all children of God, they are our brother or our sister. But how do we relate to other people. I mean, the rude grocery store clerk who he insulted me because maybe I did something wrong. How, how do I respond to that? Do I, do I see her as a sister? Do, do I see her as a brother? Or, or do I take some smiley thing back at her to try to hurt her back? I mean, I heard a quote, hate is easy, love is hard. But if I begin to see her as a, or, as, or a him, as, as a child, as my sister or my brother, and I wonder what's going on in their life, what happened to them today to try to have more understanding rather than just a hit back? Or what about somebody, I'm driving down the road and somebody swerves in and cuts me off. That's my brother, that's my sister. I, I don't necessarily approve of his actions or her driving, but, but maybe she's late. Or maybe he's missed his turn. I mean, the goal to see other people as a brother or sister is trying to recognize them in a relationship to understand them rather than just demean them or put them down. I mean, today in Ukraine, we have brothers killing brothers, sisters killing sisters. Uh, Walter Wink has an interesting statement. He said, the dominant religion of the world today is not Christianity or Hinduism or Islam or Judaism. It's the prevailing faith in violence. The prevailing faith in violence. I know that sometimes you look at the world and you see, what can I do? What can I do? I mean, I've heard the story of a, of a man crying out to God, God, do something, do something. And, and God responds, I did. I made you. We, we have responsibilities of how we treat one another, wherever they be. If every human being is our brother or our sister, Reverend John uh, Thomas had this interesting story. He was at a retreat at a Roman Catholic 
a, a monastery and with a bunch of seminarians and every, every uh, day after lunch, they would get together for Holy Communion. And they gathered there at the chapel and there was another couple, they looked retirement age, they were there and, uh, and, the and they had, uh, they, they were on a retreat, a spiritual retreat. And, and, and the husband, he had an interesting sweatshirt on, on the sweatshirt, this is what the sweatshirt said. I can only be nice to one person a day, and today is not your day. <laughs> Tomorrow doesn't look too good either. Uh, that doesn't seem very Christian to me. But he's there for a spiritual retreat. Maybe God can work in his life. Well, the next day he changed sweatshirts. This is what the second said. What don't you understand about the word no? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you do to the least of these you do to me. I mean, as Christians to look at our responsibility of how we relate to other people. I mean, to me that parable could be called the parable of the prodigal father more to me because his extravagant love, his reckless love, and that's how God loves us. And so as we go about our lives, to look to see what can God want us to do. I mean, uh, it's um, Richard, Richard Rohr, a Roman Catholic theologian. Uh, he, he has, to me, uh, some great uh, insights of what we are called to do. So let me just let's share this. I, I really like his thoughts. Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. The work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. Encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. Peacemaking is more important than power. We should care more about love and less about sex. Life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Eternity is God's work anyway. As we gather here today of people of God seeking to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to me all I can say is thank you God for loving us. Thank you God for calling us. And I ask God to form and shape us, to mold us into the people he wants us to be. And then use us every day for his purposes. That we can bring peace and love through Jesus Christ. So let us bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Gracious and loving God. 
Give us the grace to follow your word, to be clear in our task and careful in our speech. Give us open hands and joyful hearts. Let Christ be on our lips. May our lives reflect a love of truth and compassion. Let no one come to us and go away sad. May we offer hope to the poor and comfort to the disheartened. Let us so walk before God's people that those who follow us might come into his kingdom. Let us sow living seeds, words that are quick with life, that faith may be the harvest in people's hearts. In word and in example, let your light shine in the dark like a morning star. Do not allow the wealth of the world or the enchantment flatter us into silence as to your truth. Do not permit the powerful or judges or our dearest friends to keep us from professing and doing what is right and what is loving, what is Christian. This we pray in the name of our God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.